Uh, my name is Kevin Twitt. I've uh, been a campus minister with RUF for 10 years at Belmont University. Um, and this is basically a similar seminar to what I gave last year with a different title. <laughs> That's the best way to, to prepare a seminar is to give the same seminar over and over again. Um, but I have been thinking about, about this a lot more this summer. I've been trying to turn some of these ideas into a book, which uh, I'm finding is more difficult than I thought it would be. But um, nonetheless, I think important because um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the, the, the things that have, I guess, emerged in RUF circles, uh, which is this college ministry of this denomination. Um, some interesting, maybe even surprising things that uh, have been born out of working with college students, particularly as we kind of move into a different kind of cultural situation with postmodernism, and, and in some ways some surprising things that maybe wouldn't have been predicted 30 years ago uh, as far as worship. Um, you know, one of the distinctives, I guess, that's, that's developed in RUF circles, working with college students, is uh, just a real um, rise and increase in the interest uh, in hymns among college students. And so a lot of what I'm going to say today, it, it's not that we um, only sing hymns in RUF meetings. We don't. But I, I do think that if we talk about maybe why we sing so many hymns in RUF meetings, it's a good way to get at both some of the presuppositions um, behind worship that, that, um, that we hold dear in RUF circles, and also some things that I guess have helped me even to understand the students that we're working with. So this is titled, you know, College Students of Worship. But I, I, I hope you understand that I believe that, that the things that we're going to be talking about today are applicable way beyond college students. In some ways, I think college ministry is important for the, the life of the church because in RUF what we talk about all the time is we're interested in what the church is going to look like 20 years from now and what part we have in that as teaching elders working with RUF. Uh, and, and also, college ministry is a, is a great opportunity to, in some ways, experiment a little bit. Uh, you can try things with college students, and you know, if it completely falls, you know, falls apart, you know, three or four years, you've got new students. Now, that's not to say that we don't care about those students and, and pastoring them, but there is a, 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 an ability to try some things um, that I think is really helpful and benefits the broader church. I think it's one of the reasons college ministry is important. Um, so, we, you know, we want to build the church for the next generation. I think we should be asking ourselves, how will the songs that we're singing and, and the kinds of things that we're doing in worship with college students, how will that strengthen the church 20 years from now? Um, a friend of mine, John Whitfleet, who's the director of the Calvin Institute in Worship, and if you don't know him or any of his writings, you really should um, get to know him. His book, Worship, Seeking Understanding, a collection of various essays he's written, is really wonderful. In the last chapter of that book, uh, he asks the question uh, or discusses the whole idea about how regular corporate worship prepares us for our encounter with death. He said that the, what, the thing we should be thinking about when we think about what songs are we going to sing this Sunday is how will this prepare us for our encounter with death, which is inevitable. I, I, I had an opportunity to think about this. Recently I was, uh, underwent my yearly physical and the doctor uh, was listening to my heart and said he didn't, he didn't hear something that sounded quite right, so he sent me off to another specialist. Lo and behold, they come back and tell me that I've got a heart valve problem, which is going to require open heart surgery sometime in the next two to four years. I feel no symptoms. There are no symptoms, really. Um, and as I walked out of, you know, out of the hospital after that test, I, I just thought, the doctor just told me I'm going to die. <laughs> and then, I, then I, thought, I caught myself and said, well, I'm a pastor. I should know that. <laughs> I didn't need a doctor to tell me that. But, but I think in some ways we forget, you know, that inevitable fact. 
um, and, and how that should sort of be brought into our consciousness in the decisions that we make about worship. Um, how, how, how is our worship preparing our people for their encounter with death? See, that's to sort of think about worship and what we do in worship in a really different way. It's not how can we entertain the people and keep the people coming, but how can we disciple them through what we do in worship as, as shepherds, uh, teaching elders, ruling elders, um, sessions charged with overseeing the worship. Um, how can we ask questions that I think drive us to some of these bigger uh, issues? And I'll tell you this, that my, you know, my, my comments are born uh, out of noticing how hymn texts were resonating with my students and we're trying to reflect on why they're resonating so deeply with people. I mean, we, you know, we're singing some of these, these old hymn texts set to new music. A lot of them I discovered from my love of old books and some old hymnals didn't have any, you know, music to some of these texts. I've had people be upset that, you know, sometimes we've, you know, set some of their favorite hymn texts to tunes that, you know, they don't like. Uh, a lot of those texts I didn't know. I didn't grow up in a church where we sang any of those hymns, right? Uh, so I wasn't trying to deconstruct church music. But as I, as I sort of found so, you know, some of these students, I, in other words, I, we made this little CD, and the response that we got was just overwhelming. We hoped maybe we'd sell enough to cover the cost of producing a CD, and we just sold thousands and thousands of CDs, and I would get these emails from people um, about, you know, the, the, these hymns, you know, have helped me. I, I got one recently from a lady who um, is a member of a PCA church down in Alabama who talked to me about how, um, which was whatever my God ordains is right and dear refuge in my weary soul and hymns like that had helped her um, through, you know, the, the death of her two grandchildren and her son-in-law in a house fire. And I've had people email me about how, you know, this, this is the hymn that we, that we played at, at, at this funeral, you know, for this teenager in our church. And you just go, there's something going on here. Um, I, I've never actually been to a funeral where we sang praise choruses. And I think that's kind of interesting. I, I, I'm sure that it happens. It's never been, been my experience. I began to ask, what's going on here? And I found one of my students posted this on a, on a website in response to an article about hymns. And it was an article about the story behind the hymn, um, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. And uh, so I found this. So I like this because I didn't ask her to say this. Uh, I sort of discovered that she'd, she'd written this to some of her peers, and she said this, coming from a typical praise chorus reliant high school youth group, I sort of turned my nose up as I was handed a notebook of hymns on my first visit to RUF. I didn't understand a lot of the poetic and imagery-driven lyrics, and the word hymn automatically meant boring music. But as the weeks passed, I found myself falling in love with the old hymns and the idea of putting new and very beautiful music to them. The words are so profound and full of truth, one can't help but be broken. Singing hymns has seriously changed my life and freed me from feeling frustrated by surface lyrics, surface lyrics excuse me, that focus on how I feel about God, which is always changing. Hymns have allowed me to center my worship on the gospel, which in turn compels me to love the God I am prone to hate and wander from. I love about that is even the language of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing has entered into her way of talking about her faith. I, I would submit to you that, that worship really is about spiritual nurture, spiritual formation. Um, so, you know, there, there, there really is some, some profound things, encouraging things um, going on among young people and the way they're thinking about worship. There's a number of books that document this sort of thing. If you've not read The Younger Evangelicals by Robert Weber, I um, highly encourage you to do that. He summarized kind of 
what he has to say about worship. He says this, I find three trends in the worship of the younger evangelical. They are, one, a reaction to entertainment worship, two, a longing for an experience of God's presence, and three, a restoration of liturgical elements of worship. Now, this is, this is not something I think people would have predicted 30 or 40 years ago. Um, but, I, but I, you know, I think the way I, the way I like to talk about this is I found a, a sign in an antique store once that I think summarizes what, I've, what I've, I feel is going on. And the sign said this, my grandmother saved it, my mother threw it away, and now I'm buying it back. <laughs> and I think that, that pretty much captures what the baby boomers did um, and the seeker-sensitive movement in, in a lot of our churches. But I tell you what, if, if you want to talk about college students today, don't mention the word seeker-sensitive. They are, they are hypersensitive to the idea that what we do in worship is just sort of try to offer the latest kind of marketing spin to them. This is a, this is a generation that has grown up uh, being marketed to. And they, um, they, they want to know that Christianity is bigger than just the latest fad. They, they want to they know that they've connected to something that has roots um, to it. Uh, I, I think about this, you know, postmodernism, I, I really see a lot of positives to it. There's certainly positives and negatives. But for me, the one of the things I like to think about is postmodernism is an opportunity to go back and read the Bible again and see if we missed something by reading it with our modern cultural blinders. And I find over and over again, yes, we have. Um, I was just in Brian Habig's seminar, and he has some wonderful things. You know, we don't need to change everything. We have a fixed theology. Um, and it's true. The Bible is true. Our standards still capture, he says, uh, the world and our condition. Yeah. But I think in a lot of ways, we've missed what the Bible has to say about a lot of things. We filter things out. In college, I was just amazed when I read C.S. Lewis's essay on the reading of old books. Anybody read that essay? He talks about for every new book you read, you should read one, I can't remember, one or two old books. And um, I, I, I've tried to put that in practice, even in college, and I can tell you that my life has been so enriched by doing that. Um, so many of the discussions I have with people about the worship wars, I, I feel like if only people had a, a broader understanding of history and the history of worship, and even the way people thought about things 200 years ago, doesn't mean that the people 200 years ago were always right, but it would just at least give us pause to say, maybe the way I intuitively think about things isn't necessarily right. Um, when, I, when we sing a hymn like, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, um, destitute, despised, forsaken, you know, all these, all these lines about um, what it means to follow Jesus and the suffering that we should expect. I, I, we sing that hymn and I say, gosh, I just can't imagine, you know, somebody in Nashville sitting in a little, a, a little room in a publisher's office writing a song like that. Um, and, and, and it doesn't mean that, that that hymn is necessarily right. I mean, the scripture is our only rule for faith and practice. But it gives me pause to say, you know, Christians thought about the Christian life very differently in different cultures and in different times. Um, and the hymns have really helped me with that. So why do we sing so many hymns in RUF? It's because of the principles that drive our understanding of ministry and spiritual formation. And let me explain to you what some of those are. We believe that worship is formative, and thus it matters what we sing. We want Christ to be displayed so that he becomes more beautiful and believable in our eyes. I love that phrase. Bill Lane, uh, who I had the privilege to get to know a little bit before he passed away, the commentator in Hebrews and Mark, some of you may have heard of him, he, he would often pray that um, as an invocation. Lord, send your spirit that Jesus would become more beautiful and believable to us. And he rightly understood 
that worship is actually about spiritual warfare. God comes and he opens our eyes to set us free from our idols, to draw us, to woo us to Jesus, to put our hope in him that our affections would be captured. Um, I heard Tim Keller say one time that in poor writing, I'm talking about you know, writing a novel or something like that, in poor writing you would say something to the effect of the heroine was beautiful. But in good writing, you describe the heroine in such a way that every reader says, oh, she's beautiful. And, and the hymns have a way of displaying Christ. Uh, what, what Lori mentioned, what I hear from students time and time again is, don't tell me what I should feel. Don't tell me what I should feel. Don't tell me even what I should do. Display Jesus in a way. Help me connect the dots. Sure. But don't just, don't just say, you know, do this, do that. Jesus, I just want to love you. <laughs> don't lie to God in, in, in worship. Um, hymns, uh, you know, I think have helped me to understand what Thomas Chalmers talks about in his famous sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, that spiritual change happens through the expulsive power of a new affection. And we want to think about that in when, when we're planning worship, when we're thinking about what we sing, what we pray, how we preach. And um, in, in working with college students, I, I've been more and more convicted of the importance of that. Um, what Brian was just talking about, do we, do we think in terms primarily of imparting information to people, or do we think of worship in a more holistic way as displaying Christ through the word, through the sacraments, um, through the, the word as it comes to us maybe indirectly through the hymns? Um, I think that's very, very important. The way I talk about Chalmers' principle of this power of the explosive affection with college students is to talk about the phenomenon of being on the rebound. Do you know what that, that means? If you've ever sort of had a crush on somebody or been in a relationship with somebody and that ends, you'll find that your heart never really gets over that until, until a new love comes along. Or if you have children, you've probably had opportunity to notice this, that you know, when I tell my five-year-old how he's going to get that toy back from his sister who's two, just grabbed it out of his hand, um, you probably don't want to just grab it back. Just pick up anything and hold it up in front of her, and she'll gladly let go of what you want and grab this other thing. I think there's a spiritual principle there. I, I see this strategy of God in the book of Isaiah all over the place. Rather than God just coming and saying, your idols are worthless, exposing them, which he certainly does, he also reveals himself. God reveals himself as what we truly are longing for. Don't put your hope in armies and men, but trust the Lord who is our warrior. Don't put, your, you know, don't put your hope in idols that don't know the future, but I am the one who holds the past and the future in my hands. Put your hope in me. And I think that that's very important to see. If God is, is, is doing that with, you know, to help his people, um, we should be thinking about that. And how can we, even through the songs that we sing, exposing the emptiness and the worthlessness of our idols, but also displaying God in such a way that our affections are grabbed Another, another thing along these lines is that hymns focus us on God's promises more than upon ours. Again, you see that uh, in Lori's little quote. She says, I, I, I'm just so sick of trying to um, put my hope in my love for God. Right? That, you know, in 1 John, we know and rely on the love God has for us. Augustus Toplady puts it so well in that hymn, Rock of Ages, which, I don't know if you know this, was originally titled, A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. He wrote it in the midst of his controversy with John Wesley about uh, entire sanctification. Um, and he said, you know, the, the, the prayer that we'll need for living and for dying 
is could my you know zeal no respite no it means even if i could stay fired up for jesus all the time could my tears forever flow if i could weep over my sin the way i should all for sin could not atone thou must save and thou alone our people need to know that you know we, we live in a, in a world where people you know sort of make their identity by their choices right they define themselves by what they choose to buy but we present to them you know, a very countercultural message that says your identity is based upon God's choice, not your own. Not that our will has no place, but our, our, we need to understand that our hope is in God's promises, not our own. Faith feeds on the promises of God. Many of the, the songs that we sing and that we market uh, to the church as college worship really focus us constantly on what we want to do. You hear this phrase all the time, Lord, I just want to. Lord, I just want to. Um, it doesn't really it doesn't really help and in some ways it, it it implies to people that the most important thing is what you want to do but I, scripturally we know the most important thing is what god is committed and determined to do that's the determining factor in the universe isn't it um you know we know and rely on god's love for us not on our love for each other i love in the book of hosea um, where god says what can i do with you O ephraim your love is like the morning mist and I, say, you know, I often use that passage in weddings, say, you know, as much love as you feel for each other in this moment, your hope cannot be based on that. If God says your love for him who is perfect is like the morning mist, how can you possibly, how can you possibly put your hope in your love for another person? You can't put your hope even in your love for God, but in God's love for you. And we need our students to understand that. We need to encourage our students in that. We need to um, continually reinforce for them the promises of God and the character of God. Hymns stretch us. It's okay. It's okay to have content in our worship services and what we do. It's okay if we have to explain a line of a hymn. I would, I would love it if my students all understood what an Ebenezer was. They need to know that concept. I, I want my students to know what it means when we sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. They have to know that. Do you know, do you know that? That line from On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, you know what a sweet frame is? A frame is an emotional state. And, I, you know, I, I think some of my students have, have maybe grasped the idea that they shouldn't trust in their, in their um, despairing frames, <laughs> you know, when they, when they feel God, God can't love me. But I tell you, not many of them really believe that when they feel great about God's love that they shouldn't put their hope in that either. Bill Boyd, who used to do RUF at the University of Texas, said basically every student I meet with is trying to, get back to a, trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in camp uh, during junior high. <laughs> John Newton says that Christians who trust in their frames, uh, that's, that's a state of immaturity. In immaturity. Read his letters where he talks about grace in the, in the blade, grace in the ear, his, his three kind of letters about sort of the different stages of the Christian life. But uh, often what we are encouraging in our modern evangelical world um, our college students, we're encouraging them to live in sort of a constant state of immaturity, depending on their, their sweet frames. I want them to know what they're singing. It's important. I, I had an opportunity, interestingly, um, a few years ago, I was still on the staff at Christ Community Church, and before I left and, and went and did RUF full-time, I had an opportunity to train the deacons and the elders, the new deacons and elders, in the confession of faith. And it was really interesting to me that the, the deacon candidates, who were primarily in their late 20s, early 30s, and the elder candidates who were in their sort of mid to upper 40s had a really different perspective on the theology and the confession of faith. 
it was really the deacon candidates who were much more interested in wrestling with this stuff and, and wanted to know, I'm not sure I want to buy into this until I really understand it and really believe it. I thought that really fascinating. But it, I, I'm convinced it was really a generational thing. Had my students, um, at one point we were doing sort of corporate confessions of sin and by projecting them up on the PowerPoint. But the students had no opportunity to read the corporate confession of sin before we were asked to say it. And they began to react to that and say, I don't want to say something unless I have a chance to read through it and make sure that I own it. I, I think that's really helpful. And, you know, they, they, really, they really take this stuff seriously. I think that's a really encouraging sign. I don't mean to say that the students are without fault, but again, I think that we should be encouraged that, that um, a lot of our students are really interested in, in taking this stuff seriously. Again, they don't want to buy into something that's just a fad. Um, you, you know, you even see this um, in a sense, I, I'd say probably 20, 30 years ago, if I tried to explain to a student talking about predestination, I tried to explain to them the tension between um, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, so that divine sovereignty, human responsibility tension that D.A. Carson talks about so well. If I tried to explain that to students 30 years ago, 20 years ago, they, they, they would listen to me and say, okay, yeah, but which is it? Is God sovereign or is man free? You know, got to figure it out. Now you explain, well, there's a tension. Oh, okay, great. They, they're so much more comfortable with, with paradox, with unanswered questions, um, with being able to wrestle with things. I think that's a helpful thing. Um, anyway, I'm getting a little off. I'll try. Turn, turn to the next page here. This one often, you know, surprises people. A lot of the, a lot of the music that were, again, that's marketed to college students, um, claims to have the benefit of offering real emotional engagement. But I will tell you, um, if you, if you do a survey of the kind of emotional engagement and the emotions that are engaged with a lot of the modern courses that we've seen, they do not offer as full an emotional range as the hymns or certainly the psalms. Um, Dan Allender has said one time that if we sang more psalms, we'd have a lot less need for Christian counselors. And I think uh, a similar thing could be said for hymns because so many of them model the psalms in that they take us on a journey. They help us sort of walk through things. You know, Calvin talks about how the psalms are that anatomy of the soul that sometimes you don't even know you're feeling something until you sing it, until you, you know. And I think that a lot of the hymns do that same thing. They help us work through emotions. They cover a wider range of emotions. Uh, and again, this is a surprising point because a lot of people, like, like Lori, she as assumes that hymns mean boring music and something that would never engage me in an emotional way until she begins to, to read the words and begins to sing the words and finds that, you know, here I, ha I, can, I, can, I can sort of offer to God, I'm frustrated. I mean, a hymn like, Be a Refuge of My Weary Soul. Um, we need to be able to say those things. Marva Dawn, one time, was, was talking to a pastor friend of hers uh, about the kind of songs that they were singing in their worship service. And she asked him, he had a, he had a church maybe with three or 400 people, and she said, think about, over the last three or four years, how many families in your congregation suffered some loss, some trauma of, of, of real significance? And he said, he thought about it, he said, well, virtually everyone in the last three or four years has suffered, you know, something Pretty, pretty huge, pretty significant. She said, now think about the songs that you sang and the, the worship services that, that you've had over the three or four years when basically every week somebody came into your church whose life was falling apart. Did you ask them to pretend that everything was happy, that everything was wonderful? Or did, did you give them an opportunity to say, Lord, today I have a weary soul. 
today I, I, I really don't love you. And thank goodness that my hope is not based on my love for you, but on your love for me, and I need to hear it again today. I need to have my sanity restored. I need to see Christ displayed so that he would become more beautiful and believable. So I believe, I believe in some ways, I, you know, I think it's important we think faith is seeing more, not less. You realize that, right? It's a pretty countercultural idea. I mean, people in our culture think if you, if you have faith, that means that, that you're closing your eyes to reality. But we know that faith means seeing more, not less. It means seeing spiritual realities that help us understand what we see merely with our eyes. Right? Faith is seeing more, not less. In our worship, do we help people with that? Do we help them see more? Or do we say, to come into worship, you need to leave all those distractions at the door and pretend that everything is, is just fine? I think another you know, important point is that hymns engage our imagination, our intellect, and our will together. And this is an important point because a lot of the praise choruses go directly for the emotions. Uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, a lot of the um, gospel songs, which are, you know, when I'm talking about hymns, I'm not talking about songs like In the Garden, which are, are more technically um, gospel songs. Hymns, maybe I should spend a moment just on this. Um, hymns take an idea and they develop. Generally, you know, they have sort of equal number of stanzas that all follow the same format, um, and they, they don't have a chorus or a refrain. They, they tend to have an idea, and they'll develop it sometimes sort of along chronological lines. Sometimes they develop it um, trinitarianly. Sometimes they'll take a theme and say, how does this theme work itself out in this situation, in this situation, in this situation? Um, the gospel songs tend to, to say the same thing in different ways. Um, and, and this isn't a hard and fast you know, way to talk about it. Some, sometimes this breaks down a little bit. But they'll, they'll say the same thing in different ways, and then you come back to the chorus, and we can all, we can all talk about it, right? And whereas the praise choruses tend to just be sort of one idea, um, and, and here it is. And, and, I, and it doesn't mean that the, that the one idea isn't even said in a creative and powerful way. Uh, but there's just something about the hymns and the way they take us somewhere on, on a journey. And it's a journey that I, I think really engages our imagination, our intellect, and our will. There's a lot of the praise choruses focused merely on our, our will uh, or our emotions. Uh, the hymns, you know, use such rich language and images, which is, is really, really helpful. Um, and and I, I find, you know, the, the praise choruses, one of the unfortunate things is they're stuck in just a really limited number of images when the Bible is so full of rich images and metaphors, uh, and we need all of those. Um, one of my favorite hymns, George Matheson, um, the uh, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I don't know if you know the, the story behind that hymn, but George Matheson was a, a very promising seminary student uh, who, during his time in divinity school, began to go blind. His fiance at the time, ended the relationship, saying she didn't want to go through life married to a blind man. And he wrote that hymn uh, on the evening that his sister was getting married. And the significance of that is that um, after he you know, graduated from seminary, he tried to write a scholarly book, and it was full of a lot of errors, um, which a lot of people say was probably because he wasn't able to do the research that he needed to do on account of his blindness. But he ended up being actually a, a very popular preacher, uh, preached to a congregation of a couple thousand people. And his sister lived with him and helped him. He never married, but his sister lived with him and helped him sort of with all the kind of life paths, right? And on the, 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 the occasion of the writing of this hymn, he was sitting at home by himself. All the family had went 
to her wedding. And he wrote in his journal about this sort of this intense wrestling um, that he had with God. He didn't he doesn't say why, so there's a bit of a speculation. But I don't think it's hard to imagine what it would have been like for him to sit there and wonder, who will take care of me now? So you think about his own marriage that never was. And as you know, often as you, you sit there and you wrestle with that kind of stuff, he said this hymn came to him really in a way that was no other hymn. He wrote a lot of hymns, but he said this one came to him almost as if it was dictated to him in a matter of about 10 or 15 minutes. He never wrote another hymn like that in his life. But I love this, this image um, where he talks about, I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. I love the way he, he, he you know, points to that. Instead of just saying, you should trust God. There's a real different way. Again, see, the heroine is beautiful. God is trustworthy. Versus, I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. In other words, you know that image, right, from the, the Noahic covenant? Um, and, and the word, you know, there for the battle bow, the bow is not like a little bow you wear in your hair, but it's, it's the image of a battle bow. And if you, th you think about this battle bow, it's a, it's a cocked battle bow aimed at God himself, not at us. But God's promise to not destroy the world again is the sign of a battle bow cocked at him. And, there, and uh, you know, to think about um, the cross in terms of that imagery. Why is the promise not in vain? Because the promise has been made and kept in Jesus. Christians look at sort of all the threatening uh, sort of appearances of, of this life, but the one thing they understand is this cannot be expression an expression of God's wrath because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the very end. I feel the promise is not in vain. The promise has been made and kept. Therefore, I know that it looks like rain. Can you imagine what it was like for Noah every time it rained? After that, after the flood, and to think at that point God gives this sign of his commitment to never destroy the, the world by flood, and the sign is that he's got a battle bow pointed at himself. Now, I think, you know, Again, like Brian was talking about in, in the last seminar about, you know, one of his Vanderbilt students grew up in a, you know, wonderful PCA church, hearing expository preaching, being catechized, and sitting across from this student and, and him saying, you know, when I'm, when I'm hearing a preacher and they get up and say, you know, God is faithful, and here, point one, blah, blah, he goes, I hear that preaching, I just glaze over. But if you point me to a story in scripture about God's faithfulness, then I'm, I'm engaged. Uh, again, I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's just really interesting to me. I find a lot, of, a lot of college students don't know what they're missing, frankly. I mean, we've got a lot of students, Bill and I were talking about this, who've never sung hymns because their parents thought that they were irrelevant or they wouldn't be able to reach speakers. So they've thrown this stuff out of the church. And so many of these students are saying, man, we need this. I need to, we need to know, you know that, that people who lived 300 years ago found it difficult to believe in God in the midst of trials. Because <laughs> that's what I'm finding. I feel like I'm crazy. I feel like I'm the only one. I can't tell you how many times I sit down with students who want to talk to me about why they're sure they can't be a Christian. And, and as they rattle off all these reasons, I say, well, have you read the Psalms? <laughs> Sounds to me like pretty normal Christian experience. But they've never heard anybody talk about it. And, and certainly the songs that they've sung in their worship services have never help them understand that Christians feel schizophrenic most of the time. This is Romans 7, right? But, but do, we, do, we, do we present that to people? Do they know what the normal Christian life feels like from the songs that we sing, from what we do in our worship services? 
hymns broaden our range of metaphors. Um, this is really interesting. I read a, a book, I don't know if anybody's read this book, by Peter Matheson, The Imaginative World of the Reformation. Anybody read this book? Uh, it's Fortress Press, so, you know, he, he's, I'm sure we'd have some, some places where we disagree with him theologically. It's a really interesting book. He's an expert in the popular culture of the pre-Reformation and Reformation period. So he's made, you know, his life's work a study of the woodcutting and, you know, the, the different um, sort of popular culture artifacts. And what he says is so interesting that right before the, the Reformation, the dominant metaphor that people had to understand who Jesus was was Jesus as judge, Christ as judge. It dominates the passion plays. It dominates the art. It dominates um, so much of, of just the popular piety of, of ordinary people. But when, when the reformers begin to, to go back to the Bible and read it for what it actually says, he says you find right at the dawn of the Reformation this explosion of metaphors in the, in the sermons, in the wood cuttings, in all of the popular art kind of artifacts of all, the, you know, all these rich, wonderful images. And he talks about how when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. Now, I, I don't believe that metaphors have no connection to truth or reality. I'm not using it in, in that sort of way. I'm saying that, that God gives us lots of different ways to understand who he is. The C.S. Lewis uh, talks about at one point, you know, does God say, you know, reveal himself by using the word, you know, omnipotent, or does he say, I'm a rock? You know, does God use pseudo-scientific language, um, or does he use these metaphorical images that help sort of engage our imagination? And, and, and what do we do with our psalms? Do, do we understand what God has modeled for us and the way he's communicated himself, and does that have any bearing on the, the way we sing and the kinds of things we do, or the way we pray, or the way we preach? I found it really interesting to think about you know, my college students and the kinds of music that, that engages them, you know, the poets that really speak to their heart and soul, people like Patty Griffin, um, Bright Eyes, some of these, these different folks you may or may not be aware of. And to think about, you know, sort of looking, listening to their, to their words and their, their, their images. And so many of, of these songwriters that really engage our college students root truth in very concrete, tangible stories. They don't spend much time sort of talking about sort of these disconnected abstract truths, in, which is really contrary to most Christian music. Most Christian music is still sort of preaching at us in a modern way, abstract truths. God is faithful. He'll be with you forever. Uh, you know, Patty Griffin, for instance, has this, um, this song. She, she wants to talk in one of her albums. She says the whole album is about how life sucks, <laughs> but you have to – sort of get up and keep, keep walking every day anyway. Now, I wouldn't, you know, um, articulate her, you know, the world that way. But the interesting thing is the way she goes about saying that. She, she writes a song called Making Pies. Anybody know that song? Uh, about this, this woman who lost her love when the bombs fell in World War II and they were over in Italy. Um, and now her life, you know, consists of going to the, um, the, the tabletop pie factory in tabletop Massachusetts and making pies. And she says, you could cry all day or just make pies. You know, what are you going to do? I'm making pies. And, and you enter into this story, it just grabs you. And again, you know, what's so fascinating is so many of these hymns, they arise out of real situations that have sort of a universal appeal, but they, they come through particular stories and sort of, in some way, what Dr. Chapel would call lived body 
kind of illustrations. And I find, I'm trying to think in terms of my preaching, in terms of how can I, how can I learn from the way that sort of people are really communicating well with my students? Why is it that they're more moved by Patty Griffin's songs than my preaching? You know, again, I have a very high view of preaching, but I, I was just really challenged one time reading one of William Cooper's letters where he talked about how I might have preached more sermons than Tillotson and even better sermons, and the world would have been fast asleep, but a volume of verse is a fiddle that sets the universe in motion. Now, he had a high view of preaching as well, but he understands that there's something um, about poetry. As a matter of fact, he had this idea, Cooper did, William Cooper, who wrote hymns like, Oh, for a closer walk with thee, and there's a fountain filled with blood, and God moves in mysterious ways, you know, you know William Cooper. Um, he had this idea that's fascinating, you should explore, I want to explore some more, that the pre-fall language was poetry. And that when we use poetic language, we actually are tapping into something sort of in a kind of Polanyi kind of way uh, about what it means to be truly human. Um, but it was poetry. He actually led a, a sort of a movement to, to have poetry that was really based in the ordinary way people speak instead of sort of high, flowery kind of language. But again, it's rich language, but it's, it's not language that's disconnected from ordinary people. And it's fascinating to me how many of our hymn writers deliberately wrote in a way to accommodate themselves to the poor and the unlearned. Um, people like John Newt, William Cooper, Isaac Watts, they all talk very specifically about this, James Montgomery. Um, and it's really interesting to, to think about that. And um, you know, again, I, I don't know if that means we should sort of dumb down everything. You know, on some level, that's intention with some of the things I'm saying. But, but I think that, um, I think that the, it, the metaphors uh, are really important. You know, our people are, are grabbed by those those kinds of images, and we have them um, in, in, our, in our hymn tradition. And we need to we need to mine it and use it. I think. Um, I think I said this already about hymns tell us a story and walk us through the gospel. Um, they connect us, I think, uh, with this longing for an experience of God. You remember Robert Weber's quote, where he talks about postmodern people really want uh, an experience with God, and I. I Hymns are really some of the richest experimental um, Christianity that we have. They also are a window into what ordinary people thought and what women have thought, which is, is really interesting to think. In, in a lot of ways, you know, reformed, reformed Christians, when you read all the great, wonderful books that we love, we rarely, rarely hear the voice of women speaking about the way they've understood the gospel and God. In the hymn tradition, you actually get access to some of that. And I think they um, can, we can really learn a lot um, from women. I think it's interesting when, when you have debates with people about the role of women in worship, and we sing all these hymns that women wrote. And uh, you just chew on that for a little bit. I think it's kind of interesting to think about. Um, next point, let me move on to this. I know I'm, I'm taking too long on some of this. We want to focus students on justification sanctification, glorification, and scripture. And again, this is one of the reasons why we sing so many hymns in our U.S., because they focus us on these things. The hymns remind us so well that we can only approach God through the shed blood of Jesus, right? It's, it's that which makes our worship acceptable. Our worship is acceptable. It's made acceptable through Christ Jesus. Um, and it really is amazing to me how little the gospel is celebrated in a lot of our modern worship songs. And again, Lori is, is, is talking about that. She says, what these songs are asking me to do is just sort, sort of pretend that God loves me because I'm passionate for him, that God loves me because I really want to worship him. 
Um, but after, what do you do when you come into worship and you don't love him and you don't have any passion and you have a cold, dead heart? What will you do? Um, you need the gospel. Uh, you need to be reminded that we only approach God through the blood of Christ. Um, and while the cross is mentioned in some courses, it's rarely ever unpacked. And there have been some studies, which you could follow up on this. This isn't just my imagination, but there have been some. One of the interesting things is, you know, to use a lot of modern worship music um, legally, you have to sign up with this organization, CCLI. Um, and, you know, CCLI tracks which songs are sung in churches and how often, and then pays the writers of these songs based on that. And so, you know, for the last 25, 30 years, they've kept very careful statistics about what are the songs that are being sung in our churches. And if you track that and examine sort of the top 25 songs over the last 25 years, you will, you will really be shocked about sort of the lack of Trinitarian understanding, the lack of the gospel or the cross. The, you know, you, you really will be amazed. Um, and uh, so I encourage, encourage you for that. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me is the, the law gospel dynamic that I find in a lot of the hymns. What, what, is, what I mean by this is a hymn like Jesus on my cross have taken Sometimes, you know, you, you sing that when you go, I'm not sure I can, I can even say this. Listen, listen to, this, uh, to this line here. Um, go then earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. So here's that faith sees more rather than less. Um, I have called thee Abba Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. And I tell people, when, when we sing this hymn, I say, this is one of those hymns that you have to sing, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. You sort of, sort of have to say that at the same time you're singing this hymn. But when you sing this hymn, what, what you're ha helping people to do is say, this is the way a mature Christian thinks about trials. Even if you're not there yet, it's really important for people to understand, sort of in some ways, a law, a dynamic. This is what we should aspire to. This is the way we should think about these things. But at the same time, the, the hymns come to us and say, your only hope is in the gospel and God's faithfulness because this is not where you are. But, you know, instead of just singing a constant diet of sort of hymns or songs that say, this is what you should be, this is what you should be, I just want to be this, I just want to be that, and you're sitting there saying, but I'm not that, I'm not that. Or a constant diet of songs that say, Jesus comes to you in your, in your brokenness. Jesus comes to you in your brokenness, which is, in a lot of ways, what a lot of the emergent um, songs are about. The hymns actually give us both those things. They say, this is what mature Christianity feels like, and yet I know you're not there. So the hymns celebrate the gospel, which is God comes to the rescue, not just once, but over and over and over again. And I, I think that that's, that's really helpful when we think about spiritual formation. Um, hymns are many meditations on the paradoxes of the gospel that drive us to worship. Um, C.H. Spurgeon said one time that when I cannot understand anything in the Bible, it seems as though God had set a chair there for me at which to kneel and worship, and that the mysteries are intended to be an altar of devotion. I think that's great advice. I heard R.C. Sproul say one time that the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like and then meditate on that. <laughs> I mean, you find this in the hymns all the time. I love the constant questions in the hymns. The idea, you know, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Wesley can't get over that. If you ever 
sort of regard that as sort of ho-hum? Well, yeah, of course. Um, you're in deep weeds, as I like to say. I, I mean, have you ever wondered, you know, was Jesus insane to, to sort of speak of the kingdom of God as a great party? <laughs> because I don't know about you, but I don't know many Christians that experience it or feel it that way. But the reason is because most of, most of the people I work with, and certainly myself, I feel like it wouldn't be a party if I wasn't invited. <laughs> of, course, of course I'm invited. Who wouldn't want me? And so, you know, the idea that the party, that the, the gospel is this party that I'm invited to that I didn't deserve, where, you know, the garments that I need are provided for me, it doesn't, it doesn't move me, right? But the, the, the hymns call me to say, hey, that's, that's, that's really an astonishing reality. Wait a second. Back up. Think about that. And I will tell you, I think meditation is one of the things that we do not know how to do. We do not know how to meditate on Scripture. Tim Keller, I think, has the best little short definition of meditation. He says it's thinking a truth in and then thinking it out. Thinking this truth in, getting it into our hearts, and then thinking out the implications for all of life. And the hymns are so great about doing that because so many of them are born out of meditation upon Scripture. Do you know the hymn, How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds in a Believer's Ear? This is one of John Newton's uh, hymns. Do you know that uh, this hymn is born out of Song of Solomon 1-3, which says, Thy name is like ointment poured forth. Now, I don't know when the last time you, you know, meditated on Song of Solomon 1-3, but I don't know. When Newton meditates on it, this is what he says. This is what he gets out of that. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Here's good redemptive historical, you know, preaching. It's connecting this to Jesus um, and what it means. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole, and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul, and to the weary rest. Dear name, the rock on which I build, my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. See, he's, he's taking this idea, what is the name? What does it mean to be ointment? Thy name is, is strength, but it's also tenderness. It's something I need in my fear. It's something I need in my sorrow. It's something I need when I'm going down for the third time. Right? I'm about to drown. It's the rock I need to build on. It's my shield. It's my hiding place. See, this is meditation. And, and for my students who have no idea how to meditate, how to think about the gospel and connect the dots to all of life, how to connect the dots between their head and their heart, the hymns take them and lead them by the hand. Say, do it this way. I remember in college reading something that A.W. Tozer said. He said, next to the Bible, the best devotional book is a good hymnal. And I had no idea what he meant for probably 15 years. But now I get it. I think he's exactly right. We need, we need to help our students connect the dots. One of the things that modernism and even postmodernism in a more profound way does is it, it splits us. It, 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 we're disconnected in so many ways. And I think the hymns are a way to, to work against that. And I found a lot of my students um, have, have really found that as well. Um, last point here. We want to give students, and I would say we need to give everybody, a bigger picture of the kingdom of God. Biblical worship is not the property of any one culture. We look forward to worship with people from every race, tribe, and tongue. Remember, Revelation 21, the kings of all the earth bring their splendor before the Lord. Marva Dawn has, has something I love in this, in this regard. She says, if our churches are really going to reflect the diversity that makes up the body of Christ, then everybody is going to have to sing songs they don't like. Wouldn't it be great if everybody came into our church just assuming that they were going to have to sing something they don't like because the church is bigger than one cultural expression? 
And practically, this is difficult, right? Because it means we're always having to submit our preferences to the kingdom, which is bigger than one culture. And I tell you, I think there's a church music application for fathers, don't exasperate your children. And I think there's a church music application for be submissive to those who are older. And, and these people need to talk to each other. Because what happens so often is the, the young people talk to themselves about why the old people don't get it, and the old people talk to themselves about why the young people don't get it. And, and if those people talk together, man. I mean, my wife will never forget growing up as a little girl standing next to her grandmother in church, singing out of the hymnal, and every time you get to that last verse about heaven, seeing tears stream down her grandmother's face. She is marked forever by that. And yet I think, unfortunately, in some ways, that generation didn't tell people why they resonated with those things so much. And so it was easy for their children to discard that. And again, now the, the grandchildren are saying, we need that. What happened? Where did that go? We want students to know that they're rooted in a church that's bigger than our own time. Uh, I love this uh, quote by Gerard Kelly in his book, Retro Future. He says, the challenge, he's talking about working with young, young people, is to provide roots and wings, to bring young people into a sense of connectedness with the past that doesn't rob them of their vision of the future, right? When we come before God and worship, the Bible says the angels are there, and so are those Christians who have went before us. As, the church, as we sing in that hymn, the church is one foundation. We have mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. And I think, you know, it's one of the reasons that, that we, we keep some of that archaic language. I want my students to know that the church is bigger than people that talk like them and think like them. Even if I have to explain, you know, a, a few of those words. Um, again, I mentioned C.S. Lewis's thing there on the, the reading of old books. Um, I hope I don't have to say this. Don't worship the hymn tradition and hymns themselves. There's a lot of bad hymns. A lot of them have been, have been rooted out. Um, but there's, you know, the hymns are, are magic. Understand, it's the gospel that comes through. It's the, the word that changes us, the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But as our songs reflect sort of the, the full counsel of God, the more our songs do that, the more um, I think we will be shaped and changed. I've got a lot of resources for you if you're interested in exploring some of the stuff on the back. Um, websites. Um, places you can find hymns, and particularly younger people that are sort of using hymns. And again, we don't, we don't you know, sing only old hymn texts and new music in RUF. I hope you don't get that impression. You might if you've only ever heard the Indelible Grace CDs, but we, we really sing a lot of traditional tunes. And I found actually a lot of my students who have never sung hymns that maybe a doorway into thinking about hymns is some of the old hymns that we've set to new music. But then once they say, oh, the words are so powerful, they really are much more tolerant and open to even traditional tunes. Um, and I, I hope you understand that. That's been my experience generally. Um, anyway, a couple minutes, thoughts, questions? Yes, hey. Yeah, you touched on it there. And first of all, bravo, this is, is red meat. Good stuff. Thank you. Um, just a question about um, points, primary points here. Hands yeah. tend to engage your imagination more yeah. than the other together, but also as regards teens. Yep. Um, so many teens, and I'm speaking here from my 18 and 19 year old. Yeah, perspective. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, they, they look to me in worship and say, where is this going? This is a keynote one year thing. Okay. And they prefer well arranged and updated older tunes or Love even new tunes from yeah. Timothy Dudley Smith. Right, that's some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
No. Yeah, yeah. Smart. Yeah, that's they, right. They like smart teams. Yeah. And is that a yeah, sure. So, well, I mean, you know, there's a range. I, my, my experience has been that tunes that are rooted in the folk tradition tend to transcend sort of different periods of time better. I mean, you know, there's a lot of tunes in the Trinity that really have such marks of sort of Victorian, sort of the things that, you know, sort of melodramatic. But then, you know, some of the hymn tunes, even if they're hundreds of years old, that are rooted in the folk traditions tend to still translate pretty well. Um, so I, I think that, um, yeah, I think the students are interested in, in tunes. I think they have a pretty developed sense of aesthetic. Um, aesthetics, is that how you say it? Um, I found that to be true. And but how, how do you teach a tune? I mean, yeah. For example, last yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. How do you teach a yeah. tune? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, this is my, my General Assembly, we probably should be singing songs that, that most people know. I, I mean, I find there's a big sort of generational gap, particularly with rhythm. Um, syncopation versus sort of rhythms that are real kind of, you know, right on the beat. It's difficult, I think, for some of the older generation to sing syncopated tunes. You know what I mean by syncopated? Um, and, and I think a lot of the modern tunes that are being written are really more geared for individual singers than group singing. So I think we need to bring all those things into consideration. But that, that's, there's some older tunes that's true of as well. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I find interesting is, um, you know, we've always maybe thought about the way you teach a tune is you do it as an offertory one week and then the next week you sort of teach. I mean, I, I've sort of went back to sort of a version of lining out. You know, we used to line out the psalms way back when. I, I line out hymns when I'm teaching a new hymn all the time. Say, you know, here, here's the first line, sing it back. Here's the second line, sing it back. Okay, now let's start over and do it. I do that in the worship service all the time. But also I think, here's interesting, think about even, you could, you could send, you know, an email to your congregation you know, the church I'm at, everybody on the email list, and, and say, hey, we're going to sing this song on Sunday. Why don't you listen to it this week? Get it into your head, into your heart. Why don't you think about the words this week, because this is what's coming. Um, that, that's not something you could do maybe, you know, 15 years ago. You can do it now. So I think we should think about some of the ways technology can even help us familiarize ourselves with a new tune before we get to the, to the church service. And I, I, you know, I find that, you know, through these in Double Grace CDs, I, I can... I can assume that a lot of the students I'm working with know these songs even before they get to RUF. Um, so I think that's that's been of help. I don't know. I saw a guy back there with a the hand. Yeah. Yeah, and you want to know more about hymns? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of apocryphal, you know, kind of stories about hymns out there. I would I recommend this, knowing that you know the price is just going to get driven up and up the more I do this. But Lewis Benson. Um, has, a, has a number of books. They're all wonderful. He has two books, Studies and Hymns, Series 1 and Series 2, which are completely different books. They came out of a kind of a regular magazine article that he wrote. Um, he's, he's a great um, Presbyterian hymn scholar, and, and those books are out of print, but they're well worth, even if you have to pay 50 bucks a volume, you should. Um, there's also a new book um, by Faith Cook, um, that I saw uh, in the bookstore here. You should go, there's about five or six copies. You should run there and pick it up. It's called Our Hymn Writers and Their Hymns. Um, good evangelical Calvinistic perspective on, you know, some of my favorite hymn writers. And it's, it's good stuff, knowing some of the, you know, there's, I'm trying to put some of that stuff on our, on our website, but you have to read a lot of that stuff to and sort of mine those kinds of things. I 
kind of consider that one of my roles and one of my interests. So um, at some point on the Indelible Grace website, I hope to have for that, we have the REF handbook online, and I hope that one of the categories you can click on is, do we know anything about the hymn writer and about the circumstances behind this hymn? Um, if I know any of that stuff, I want to share it. But I, I think, you know, to, to, to try to tell the stories of the hymn writers is really helpful um, and to be able to sort of expound on a line or two. I would recommend sort of having a limited canon. Like I grew, at one point I went to a church where we sang five or six new hymns that nobody knew every single week. And then I went to a church where we had ten hymns that were the only ones we'd ever sing. But in RUF, I try to think in the terms of this school year, we're going to sing 30 or 40 hymns. And the students are going to sing them a couple times, get to know them, and I'm going to probably explain one thing about one hymn in each meeting. So that over the course of a year, they're beginning to understand these 30 or 40 hymns and something about, about each of them. So I, I recommend that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's on the outline there uh, under the thing about God's promises. It was a living and dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. 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 That's right. Um, turn off your speakers before you go to that site because they have the cheesiest sort of MIDI patch with this like, whoa, you know, sound that they use for, you know, as soon as you click on a hymn, it comes up whether you want it or not. Um, but yeah, cyber hymnal can be, can be real helpful. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? I'll hang out here as well um, if you got more thoughts or questions. Uh, thanks for coming, and um, 